Matthew chapter 18, you could say it is Jesus teaching uh, to the church on how we're to get along with one another. And first of all, he says, uh, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven until you become like a child. What does that mean? You need to become dependent upon him, just as Ellie is totally dependent on Ryan for everything, right? We need to become like little children and become totally dependent on Christ for everything. And that's how you entered the kingdom of heaven, uh, trusting not in your own righteousness, but in what he did for you on the cross. Then he says, um, now my children, and he refers to believers as his little ones. He says, now here's how you're to treat one another. You're not to despise one another. You're not to lead one another into sin. And you're to receive one another. In other words, we need to be watching out for one another. Then the next week we talked about the fact that he says he actually keeps his children saved. Eternal security. And the means that he uses is that whole church discipline process in Matthew 18. And if you missed that, 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 get that message from last week. Now, today he goes on, and the question is, When we do hold one another accountable and lovingly uh, keep one another in the fold, there's going to be times when people um, sin and then they repent. What do you do with that repentant brother or sister? So here's the passage. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often... Will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? In other words, how many times do I need to forgive a guy who sins against me? As many as seven times? Now, Peter is hoping to get a pat on the back because, I mean, that's a lot of times to forgive somebody. 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Which, do we have any math uh, people here? What's that? 490, and some of you are like, I can't wait for 491. But he's he's not saying do the math and then you're relieved at 491, right? Um, He's saying you're to be a forgiving machine, right? Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and that all he had and all he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, "Have patience with me and I will pay you everything." And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, 
I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then here's the moral of the story. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let me pray first. Lord, as we delve into this parable, bring to our hearts the gravity of what you're talking about. The amounts of forgiveness that the numbers reveal. And then what you expect of us, how we are to treat one another. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me read you a little blurb about Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud died at the age of 83. A bitter, disillusioned man. Tragically, this Viennese physician, one of the most influential thinkers of our time, had little compassion for the common person. Freud wrote in 1918, I have found little that is good about human beings on the whole. In my experience, most of them are trash. Freud died friendless, and it is well known that he had broken with every one of his followers. The end was bitter. Conclusion, you're all trash. He had no friends. He had no relationships. Now, it makes sense that an atheist would be a bitter, unforgiving, miserable, graceless person. Makes sense, right? But what is sad is that many Christians, professing Christians, are bitter, unforgiving, graceless grouches, right? Now, the parable today, um, well, this is funny. The parable today says if your life is characterized by bitterness and gracelessness toward others, Not only will you be miserable toward others, and not only will you have a miserable life here, but you will have a miserable life for eternity in hell. How's the parable end? Throw him in prison to pay off his multi-billion dollar debt. It ends up in hell. Now you say, well, isn't that teaching works salvation, that you are saved by forgiving others and not being bitter? No, it's not. It's teaching salvation by grace and grace alone, but we'll see how this all fits together. All right? Now, last week, we talked about the whole church discipline process, where the goal of each step is repentance. Somebody sins against you, you go to them, show them their sin. Hopefully, they will repent, and everything's fine. If that doesn't work, you take step two. You go to step two, and you bring in the reinforcements. If they don't repent then, then you go to step three, which involves the church taking action. But the whole goal is that the person repents. Now, you know what? A lot of Christians are big on confronting others. 
But then when the other person actually repents, they don't know what to do. And Jesus says, what you do is you forgive them. And then Peter says, well, what happens if they keep doing it? And he asks the question. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will I forgive my brother? Will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I mean, that's pretty, pretty gracious. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. You're to be a forgiving machine. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And he goes into the parable. Now, let me, uh, let me break the parable into three points. Okay. They all begin with the same letter, amazingly. Right? First point, we see amazing grace being shown to the first servant. Then he goes out and shows appalling ruthlessness to his fellow servant. And then we see the king show angry judgment. All right? So let's first of all take a look at the amazing grace we see. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, um, one problem with trying to interpret this, uh, this parable is we don't understand the, the money units here. We hear 10,000 talents and 100 denarii, and we think the units of, uh, of money are 10,000 bucks versus 100 bucks. No. Um, a talent was much larger than a dollar. In fact, those of you who have ESV study Bibles, if you read the study note, what it says is if you were to translate 10,000 talents into common currency today, that would be the equivalent of a minimum wage worker owing $6 billion, right? Now, that used to be a lot of money until we got into today's national debt, you know? <laughs> a few billion here, a few billion there, then we're talking about pretty big money. But um, when Jesus hearers first heard this, they were devastated. Six billion dollars. There's no way a minimum wage worker or a common worker could pay this off. And then he's forgiven. Right? Now, what does the debt represent? The debt represents your debt and my debt, individual debt that we owe a holy God. Until you see your situation before God like this man's debt, until you see yourself as helpless and hopeless with a sin debt that would take eternity to pay off, you are far away from the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the way you enter the kingdom of heaven is by seeing that you are $6 billion in debt before a holy God. Now, most people don't see that. Remember I've used this statistic before? There are a majority of Americans who believe that hell is real, but how many Americans believe they're actually going there? One half of 1%. You need to believe you deserve hell before the gospel makes any sense. One way to get this across is in today's parable, Jesus talking to Peter, says, you know, the debt you owe God 
is about $6 billion. Until we're overwhelmed with our own debt before God, we're a million miles from the kingdom of God. Um, Romans 8, or uh, 3.18 says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. We need to be brought to a place where we realize we're, we're swimming in sin debt before a holy God. Now, um, what happens? And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made, sold into debtor's prison with the whole family and pay up every last cent. Now, in debtor's prison, um, do you think he would ever be able to pay off $6 billion? What, is, what does this represent? This represents sentencing a person to eternal damnation, where you pay for your own sins forever and ever and ever. Notice, this is not just the threat. This is the formal sentencing to be thrown into hell. You know, um, a lot of misunderstanding about what preaching is and isn't today. But those who have been respected preachers throughout church history, the Jonathan Edwards and the Spurgeons and the Luthers and the Kelvins and the D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, understood that preaching the gospel is law gospel preaching. Law gospel preaching. The law needs to be preached in all its terror. And the gospel then comes in all its sweet relief. Today we don't want to offend anybody, so we don't preach the law in its terror, and then the gospel doesn't come with relief. So what we have is not law and gospel, we have lawspel. Okay. Let me ask you a question. The visitors who visit. Does the preaching that you're used to bring you to a place where you see your actual debt before God and your actual condemnation to hell? Where you respond this way? So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. If this is not regularly happening, and I don't necessarily mean you have to literally fall on your knees, but in your heart, if you are not brought to your knees where you realize you deserve eternal damnation, then it's pretend preaching. A lot of pretend preaching going on today. Jesus didn't pretend preach. He said, here's the situation. You all are $6 billion in debt, and you deserve to be condemned to hell for eternity. But again, that doesn't sell today. It scares people away. They don't want to hear it. It doesn't build nice big churches. But it's the truth. I would rather tell you the truth, that you are a sinner, $6 billion 
in debt. And you need to fall to your knees and say, what possibly can I do? Please have mercy on me. And then the master has mercy and grace. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. All right? There's grace. Now, let me uh, point something very important out here. Grace costs a lot. Now, it didn't cost the one who was forgiven anything. But the master couldn't just write off $6 billion. He took the hit. He took the loss. Right? When a company writes off an accounts receivable, they take the loss. Right? What is this a picture of? The cross. You see, for you to be forgiven... God can't just blink his eyes. He is a perfectly just God, and a just God demands punishment for sin. But because he's a perfectly loving God, he pays the debt. That's why he had to be nailed to a cross and endure his own wrath. So the writing off of the debt, don't say, hey, where's the cross here? There's the cross right there. He took the hit. He paid the price. Okay. Now, amazing grace should have an effect on those who receive it. I mean, any of you ever been to, to court where you thought you owed lots of money and then you were forgiven? <sighs> should have an effect on you, right? You should then... Pass that grace on to others. But what we see here is it doesn't affect him at all. Appalling ruthlessness. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. So this guy's doing the same thing. Have mercy on me. Have patience with me. And I will pay you. Okay, I've been forgiven six billion. I'll forgive you. No. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, um, again, this needs a little explanation. His fellow servant owed him a hundred Denarii. Now, we usually hear a hundred bucks. Usually the way this story gets told is one guy was forgiven a zillion dollars and the other guy wouldn't forgive a $10 debt. No, a denarii is a day's wage. So a hundred denarii is about a third of your salary. So what do you make in a year? Okay. ESV says it's about $12,000. Not ten bucks. The point is, we are to pass on grace and forgiveness, not just for little offenses, but when people really hurt you. When you take a $12,000 punch in the gut, you are to forgive that too. Now, here's the key. 
when you just dwell on the 12 grand, it seems impossible to forgive. That's a lot of money. But when we compare the 12 grand to the $6 billion we have been forgiven, literally eternity in hell, the 12 grand dissolves to nothing. Right? You know what the key is to being able to forgive others? The cross and hell. The cross and hell is the power that God uses in your life for you to be able to forgive others. Yeah, I've read a lot of books, heard a lot of sermons on forgiveness, the mechanics of forgiveness, how to confront. 27 steps of how to confront somebody about their sin. How to repent. 14 steps of how to repent. They all begin with the same letter. How to forgive. Do the following thing. And it's all laid out for you. Some of you know the book I'm talking about. But a lot of these books and sermon series are missing the key, the motive, the ability. The, the, The ability to forgive comes from being reminded of what Christ has done to save us and what we've been saved from. See, again, in our preaching today, we don't want to offend people, so we never bring up hell. And if we never bring up hell, then the cross gets pushed pushed aside. And Jesus says, you need to forgive somebody 70 times, 7 times, and we go, how? The cross reminds us of the debt we owed and what he paid, and he saved us from what? From hell. That reminds us of the $6 billion debt that we owed. Pastor Brian, why do you focus on the cross so much? Isn't it time to move on? You hear that all the time. Uh, you know, I, 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 sometimes I do get advice from people who um, say, well, we hear about the cross a lot. Isn't it time to move on? And you say, what do you, what do you mean move on? Well, you know, all the nitty-gritties of how to live the Christian life, many of which are made up. You don't move on from the cross. The cross is not something you go to to get saved and then you go out in your own effort and try to live the Christian life, all the lists of legalisms. The cross is what saves you. The cross is what sanctifies you. The cross is what gives you the ability to become Christ-like. The cross gives you the power to forgive, to become forgiving machines, right? Now, let me raise two questions, two real practical questions that always get raised when we talk about forgiving. Okay? Question number one, what if they don't repent? Do I still forgive them? Okay? Because some of you are thinking of, of people who've wronged you. They've never repented. Do I still forgive them? And the answer is a clear yes and no. Okay? Okay. Um, first of all, let's, let's give you the no answer. In a parallel passage in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And 
if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So that answers the question, must I forgive him if he repents? Absolutely. What if he doesn't repent? Must I forgive him? Well, depends what you mean by forgive. If by forgive you mean restoring full fellowship, and moving on as if it never happened. No, you're not supposed to do that. In fact, in the context of Matthew 18, isn't the whole point? We're not going to pretend that everything's fine. You go confront, and if they don't repent, you don't pretend everything's fine. You bring in the reinforcements. And if they still don't repent, you bring in the church. And if they still don't repent, you put them out of the church. And if they still don't repent, you treat them as you would a tax collector. In other words, you don't pretend. You don't restore fellowship and pretend everything is fine and dandy. For their own sake, you withhold restoration for their own good. Not to be bitter, but for their own good. So, should, if they don't repent, should I forgive them? No, if you mean restoring fellowship. Should I forgive them? Yes, if you mean letting go of personal bitterness. Absolutely let that go. Give it to God. You know what? Satan knows the best way to destroy you and make you a bitter person is by you holding on to that bitterness. It will destroy you. Right? Do you know that the formal definition, I shouldn't say definition, but the formal cause for depression is anger turned inward. That festering bitterness. There's a book by Minareth Meyer called Happiness is a Choice. And they talk about a time when they were counseling a young man who was suffering severe depression. And by the way, let me point out, some depression is biological. So it's chemicals in the brain and so forth. I, you know, I, I, I believe that there are multiple causes. But in this guy's case, they knew there was anger. And they said, so what are you so angry about? Did somebody hurt you? And uh, his face started to turn red and his fists clenched. And he started talking about a teacher who 20 years ago embarrassed him in front of the class. And then they thought a little bit of humor wouldn't hurt. And they said, so, you're really getting even, aren't you? This guy doesn't even remember you and you holding this in and being bitter for 20 years. That's really, really showing, uh, showing him. Here's the problem. We think that we are the judge. And by us being angry and bitter, we're getting even. When in reality, here's what you do. You go to the cross. And you're reminded that God is a perfectly just judge. And if they repent, they will be forgiven at the cross. If they don't repent, they will go to hell because they've never come to Christ and they will pay for their sin. God's a pretty good judge. Let him handle it. Hand it to him. See, again, you can't, you can't take the cross out of Christian forgiveness and even Christian depression. We're at the cross again. Right? So, 
What if they don't repent? If we're talking about fellow... In essence, you need to be handing that bitterness over to God. Because what if you go to them and they do repent? You need to have already forgiven them in your heart. So, what if they don't repent? Do I restore fellowship? No, not necessarily. On the other hand, personal bitterness, hand it over to God. Now, second question I want to raise is this. Does forgiveness mean trust? Ah. Answer, no. Forgiving somebody does not necessarily mean trusting them. Let me give you a bunch of examples. Your teenager puts a dent in the car for the fourth time in one week. And they, they're genuinely sorry. They're crying. They repent. I forgive you. I don't trust you. <laughs> We're going to put some restrictions until I can trust your driving ability. Right? Well, a little deeper situation. A woman is raped. Should she be counseled to forgive the rapist? Yes, absolutely. Should she trust him? No. King David. Remember Saul was crazy? King Saul was trying to kill David before he was king. Throws his spear at him and and he's hunting him down. Saul has 3,000 men. He's trying to hunt David down. David's hiding out in caves. And uh, one night, uh, Saul is asleep, surrounded by 3,000 men, and his spear is right by his head, and his water jug is by his head. And David, for some reason, decides to sneak in to the middle of the circle of 3,000 men, takes his spear, he could kill him right there, but he doesn't, and takes his water jug, sneaks out. Next morning, David goes up on a cliff, and he goes, Yoo-hoo, Saul, I got your spear. Could have killed you last night, but I didn't. I don't want to kill you. Now, what is uh, Saul's response? Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have attacked foolish, or acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place, and they all lived happily ever after. No. There are words of repentance. David lets it go. But what's the very next verse say? You turn the chapter, and it says this. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Philistines. Does he go back and start a wonderful relationship? No, he says he's going to kill me. He's crazy. He is not trustworthy. I forgive him, but I'm not going to have anything to do with him. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean trust. Forgiveness is immediate. Trust has to be earned. You know, we even see this in in the principle in church leadership. Uh, It says about before you put a guy in a position of deacon, he's in charge of a ministry, It says, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. 
Give him a job. If he's faithful and can do it, then give him another job. Test them. See if, they're, if, if they can follow through. See if they can work with people. See if they have the skills necessary. If not, don't kick them out of the church, but you don't trust them with ministry responsibility. See, there is this, uh, this principle. If you're faithful in small things, God gives you bigger things, gives you bigger things. Okay? So trust has to be earned. So I want to say that, and we can process this more in connection time. But having clarified that forgiveness is immediate, but trust needs to be earned, here's my challenge. While some people are gullible and naive and they're too quick to trust, a lot of people, on the other hand, are too quick to play the I forgive you, but I don't trust you card. That won't work in a marriage. You need to forgive, restore fellowship, and trust. Now, in some cases, that trust needs to be rebuilt, but it needs to be finally given. Right? So, again, on a spectrum of those hard-hearted, cold-hearted people who never forgive versus those who are gullible and they, they just want everything to be fine and dandy. These people need to toughen up, but those who are hard-hearted, maybe you're playing the I forgive you but I don't trust you card and you need to be playing the I forgive you and I do trust you card. Okay. Let me give you an, an example from the life of Jesus. Peter denies Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. Jesus is crucified. He rises from the dead. Peter has kind of quit. He's gone back to fishing. He's up on the Sea of Galilee. He's fishing, no luck. Throws his, his uh, net into the sea, pulls it out, and it's a huge net full of fish. And he goes, whoa, I remember this from earlier. Jesus must be here. And he sees a guy on the shore. It's Jesus. They have a little talk. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Remember at the Last Supper? Peter said, these may all deny you. I never will. Do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. In other words, I forgive you now. Let's get busy building the church. Feed my lambs. Should be done right there, right? But... He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. All right, you're forgiven, you're restored. Fine, done, it's over, right? He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Why was he grieved? Because three times reminds him of what? His three denials. You go, this is cruel what Jesus is doing. No. Jesus is cleansing the wound. You forgave me three times, or you, you denied me three times. I'm forgiving you three times. He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Not only are you forgiven, let's get busy building the church. You've got a big sermon coming up, Peter. Day of Pentecost, 3,000 baptisms. Do the curls, man. Get going. Right. So... Um, Amazing grace was shown. Appalling ruthlessness was the response. 
Now, what's, what's the result? Angry judgment. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger... A lot of people say, my God is not an angry God. The true God is. The true God does judge in anger. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Debtor's prison, pay off six billion. This is eternal damnation is what this is. And then, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Wow. What makes God angry? You say sin. Yes, sin. But then he dies to pay for our sin. He offers us free pardon and some people say, yeah, I'll take that. And then they go out and they show they never understood. What really angers God is when his grace is rejected. When his children, or those who claim to be his children, are not affected by being forgiven $6 billion and they go out and nickel and dime one another. You say, did he lose his salvation? No, he never had it. The ESV study note says this, a transformed heart must result in a changed life that offers the same mercy and forgiveness as has been received from God. Someone who does not grant forgiveness to others shows that his own heart has not experienced God's forgiveness. Right? A bitter, unforgiving, graceless, professing Christian is nothing but a professing Christian. If you can truly understand that you've been forgiven $6 billion, that Jesus hung on a cross and bled and died so you can go to heaven, and you are a petty, bitter, unforgiving, graceless person, the parable says you've never been saved. The fruit of true salvation is that you pass that grace on to others. Yes, there's the matter of trust and, and, and uh, earning trust, and there's the matter of reconciliation and versus withholding a fellowship. There's all those things, but bottom line, would you say your life is characterized by grace? Those who've experienced grace must pass that grace on. Now, um, I've been praying all week that God would do a work in our hearts this morning. In fact, worship team, why don't you come on up? We're going to hear a song now called, I think it's 7 times 70, not 70 times 7, okay? It's about a man, um, well, Michelle's going to sing it, but the man who wrote it 
grew up in a dysfunctional home, a lot of pain, a lot of bitterness, but he's giving it over to the Lord. Use this time to see your debt before God. See him hanging on the cross to pay your debt. Receive his forgiveness and healing. And here's the big part. Be willing to pass it on to others.